If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself. But even better, they've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, October 10th. And for our weekend interview, full disclosure, we're interviewing somebody I went to high school with. Let me be honest. Let's get it out of the way first. But I didn't know her in high school at all. In fact, we weren't friends. I re-met her recently when I was interviewed by her in front of a group of women lawyers. And her name is Debbie Epstein-Henry. She's actually launching a new podcast. It's called Inspiration Loves Company. She has done a really interesting things in her career. You'll hear about that. You'll hear about the pod. You'll also hear why she has taken a very different path in her career. So here is the first part of our interview with Debbie Epstein-Henry. Why should you be hosting a podcast? Tell us a little bit about what happened to you after you graduated from Scarsdale High School. I will give you an abbreviated version, but essentially I went to law school and I had a terrifying experience as a newlywed at age 26. My husband and I were at a New York City diner and I felt out of sorts. We raced back to our apartment and I had a major seizure, which led to an emergency room diagnosis for a brain tumor. And five days post-seizure, I underwent brain surgery. And my parents and husband recount this magic moment when the surgeon ran down the hall and yelled, it's a parasite, which basically means you're as good as new. And in my hazy post-op state, I not only thought I'm incredibly lucky, but I just had a moment of a realization that I need to take smart risks in my life. And I'm not going to wait until some another crazy thing happens to start really living the life that I wanted to live. And so I stopped practicing law shortly after joining a couple of law firms. And I became a public speaker, an entrepreneur, and a writer, and started loving what I was doing. And so from there, I run a speaker series and I have written two books, the second of which I co-authored. And I co-founded a company that was acquired earlier this year. And so what's next? My next big risk-taking endeavor just isn't natural to do a podcast. And the speaker series I've been running has, has been going on for 20 years. And so a podcast was really just the natural iteration of that. Can I go back to the surgery for a second? Yeah. Because I want to bring you to your worst possible moment in your life, but maybe your best. Can you explain what do you mean a parasite? Like you actually had a parasite from traveling and then that it traveled to your brain? Or is that a classification of a tumor? 
No, and it's a really interesting question. So basically what happened was I had this seizure and what triggered the seizure was what's called edema, which is swelling in your brain. And what they realized when they did the brain scan in the emergency room is that I had one major parasite in my brain that was lodged in the occipital lobe. And usually when you have a parasite, by the time they do the brain scan, there are a multitude of them. Because there was only one lesion, they had to rule out and make sure that it was, in fact, a parasite and not a brain tumor. And so only then did they do the surgery and realize, okay, this is a parasite. What's strange about it is the parasite that I had is typically found in Latin American countries, very unusual for my demographic. And so until they extracted the parasite, did they confirm that, in fact, this was not a tumor? I just want everyone to know that this is one of the reasons why I don't like to read up on people because I did not know this whole story about you, which is fantastic that I don't know it. Right. And it also really does bring home so much about what you are trying to do in the world and that idea of not waiting. It's weird that you had this terrible event in your life. When you have it in your 20s, it certainly does put everything in perspective. And, you know, you're healthy and you've got kids and everyone's doing well, but it also really does make it interesting to me to understand the path of your career. I guess that the other part of this is how did you get involved in really focusing on women in the workplace? Because that's not necessarily something that, you know, in your 20s, let's say, I guess that, you know, 80s, early 90s was really going on in most law firms. No one really cared like, oh, yeah, we need some women. Let's hire some girls is really what was, what was happening. So how did you get involved in that? That was also a really sort of momentous occasion for me. So I was practicing law in New York at a large firm and then relocated to the Philadelphia area and joined a Philadelphia firm. And I hated litigation, which is what I was doing at the time. And occasionally I'd have lunch with three other lawyers at my firm who similarly had kids like me who were young. We'd talk about what works for us, what doesn't. And I found that every woman I was speaking to, friends who were doctors and all different types of professionals were similarly struggling as I was as a Gen Xer of trying to play an integral role in our kids' lives, but also be successful and on the partnership or equivalent track. And in 1999, I sent an email out to six lawyers and said, hey, I'm starting a brown bag lunch group for lawyers interested in work-life issues. The first event will be at my firm. Forward the invite to anyone you know who's interested. And within a couple of days, 150 people emailed me back in response. Mm. I was a third-year associate. I knew I was onto something. I didn't know what it was, but I thought, I'm clearly not alone here. And this is an issue that is a sort of secret story that everybody is struggling with. And so I ran that first event in July of 1999, and the response was enormous Six months later, I was featured in a local legal paper, and I sent that news story out to my top 50 news publications and said, work-life issues, they're speaking to a need that nobody's talking about. And NPR called, and, and Morning Edition said, hey, can we feature you? And that story ran on NPR nationally in 2000. And it put me on the national map and I started doing speaking around the country and got features in New York Times and other publications and stopped practicing law. And this 150 person Philadelphia network quickly became over 10,000 lawyers 
nationally. And, and what happened was the work-life issues sort of morphed into women's issues generally. And since then, I now speak on career issues and issues outside the law and regularly work outside of industry. But it was that 1999 email that sort of struck a nerve and gave me the impetus and the confidence to leave practice and move on and do the things that I loved and really cared about. Now, of course, many people who are listening to this say like, oh, great for you. You know, you two girls or women, whatever we're called these days, um, you know, grew up with money, had the ability to make these choices. How can we help people who don't have the backing of already starting, you know, essentially on second base to think about this differently? There are people who are graduating and there's or they're parents who are hearing this and they're saying, you know, my kid has law school debt or my kid has undergraduate debt, would love to do one thing, wants to do another thing, but has to service that debt. So how do you empower some of those types of of women and, and men as well that, you know, that people who are coming out that they don't actually have the same ability to make choices and take on risks that you and I have had? It's a really important issue. And there's no question the two of us were raised with privilege and have that privilege. And that's something that can't be diminished. That all said, there are ways to do this and take risks and take smart risks in a way that makes it feasible for those who have more financial constraints. I wrote a piece a while ago called Responsive Initiative, a Fresh Twist on Innovation. And the premise of that article was that people are stagnating. A lot of people have ideas, they want to start a business, they want to break out and change their careers, and they're frozen. And part of it is this feeling of, oh, this is a financial luxury for people who are risk takers. But another aspect of it is people who feel like, oh, in order to innovate or do something new, I have to completely come up with the next iPhone. And that's really inaccurate. So much of innovation or creation or starting a new business, whatever it may be, is about being better attuned to a market need than anybody else's and being more responsive than anybody else. And so along the lines of your question, what I did was I actually straddled two worlds for three years. So mm -hmm. I ran events, the first event in July of 99 that I recounted, but then I ran events for the next three years on a pro bono basis. I developed a following, I grew that network, I developed an expertise. I became a point person. I got press. I did this all while I was an associate at a law firm. And so by the time I gave notice at that firm three years later, I launched the New York chapter of what I was doing. I started charging a membership fee for my events and I was profitable from the day I started. So I was piloting things. I was straddling two worlds. And so if you're willing to put in the sweat equity and really work the extra hours. And this was no easy feat at the time. I had two kids at the time who were very young. I then had a third kid and I was a litigation associate, but this was my love. I wanted to see if it was going to work. And those three years of piloting and straddling were the ways that I could ensure I have a viable business. I'm the right point person to do this and I can actually be profitable in doing it. I love the idea that you were sort of testing the concept while you had a job. Because what I always get nervous about is someone calls up and they'll say, you know, I just want to ditch everything and I'm going to start my own business. First of all, you don't know if you want to run your own business. There are a lot of people who are better employees than they are business owners. So that's number one. And number two is I like that you, you know, you basically said I could start this business essentially 
knowing I could be profitable. And I think you don't have to start a new business. You can just sort of, you can nurture something that interests you while you still have something else going on. All right, that's part one of the interview. Tomorrow we get into part two with Debbie Epstein Henry. Remember, if you've got a financial question, if you have a question even for Debbie, you want to listen to her podcast, all you have to do is send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com or check out all the stuff on our website at jillonmoney.com. You can watch some episodes that I've taped in terms of old TV segments and read stuff that we've written. You can also, of course, sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Okay, so that's it for the day. And it's Saturday, which means you might be around other people. Be careful, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain that physical distancing. I would say 10, maybe 12 feet is fine and try to lift somebody up today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.